Some call me Steve, Dad, Husband or Friend. Others might call me Boss, Coach or Mentor. Today you can call me the Leadership Hacker. Thanks for listening in, I really appreciate it. My job as the Leadership Hacker is to hack into the minds, experiences, habits and learning of great leaders, C-suite executives, authors and development experts so that I can assist you developing your understanding and awareness of leadership. I'm Steve Rush and I'm your host today. I'm the author of Leadership Cake, I'm a transformation consultant and leadership coach and can't wait to start sharing all things leadership with you. Our special guest on today's show is Dr. Laura Gallagher. She's an organisational psychologist who has worked with Walt Disney and NASA to help transform culture. She's now a speaker and the CEO of Gallagher Edge. But before we get a chance to speak with Laura, it's the Leadership Hacker News. If you're a regular listener of the show, you will know that we love diversity and difference on this show. In the news today, we explore what leaders can learn about mindfulness and entrepreneurship from Bhutan of all places. So where is Bhutan? Well, it's a small kingdom located deep in the Himalayas. A native of Bhutan, Dr. Karma Funcho, who's an Oxford-educated founder of the Loden Foundation, believes that leadership lessons from Bhutan can lead anyone to success in life and in business. Dr. Funcho first discovered the benefits of mindful leadership after studying as a Buddhist monk for over 10 years. He then obtained his PhD at Oxford, completed some research at Cambridge and was the first Bhutanese Oxbridge Fellow. As a self-described go-between linking Western business philosophies with Buddhist traditions, Dr. Funcho contains fascinating insights on humanity, culture, business and how leadership ties it all together. Perhaps nothing demonstrates this more than the Loden Foundation, his non-for-profit organisation for aspiring Bhutanese entrepreneurs built on mindfulness, innovation and tradition. At the Loden Foundation, Dr. Funcho's mission isn't only to create a thriving network of Bhutanese businesses, but it's also to shape tomorrow's entrepreneurs as a force of good within their communities throughout the world. In 2008, Dr. Funcho, along with a small group of colleagues, launched the Loden Foundation to face the growing challenge of high unemployment in Bhutan, along with a lack of entrepreneurial spirit, largely caused by the tradition of hand-me-down farming. The non-for-profit supports entrepreneurship in Bhutan through education, inspiration and outreach. They also offer interest-free, collateral-free loans through the Loden Entrepreneurship Programme, which ties the repayment plans to the business's strategy and structure. To date, they've supported over 5,000 aspiring entrepreneurs and funded over 200 businesses in Bhutan, 72 of which are run by women. The Loden Foundation is dedicated to preservation of Bhutan's culture and deeply rooted in its Buddhist beliefs. And with this comes the intrinsic tie to being mindful, compassionate business leaders. And of course, demonstrating those mindful and compassionate leadership practices. Cornerstones, of course, of the Buddhist philosophy. They're what Dr. Funcho believes should be the cornerstones of every leader's philosophy, no matter where they live on the planet. He says, it's important for us to bring prosperity to improve people's ordinary standard of living. But we have to seek that without losing the overall meaning of life. And one wonderful way to never forget the joys of life is being remembered that every human, every organisation is somehow interconnected. And there's a great leadership lesson here. Of course, mindfulness and compassion are given these days. 
but the role that habits, rituals and mindsets play in communities is still rife. And it sometimes takes a bold leader to disrupt that status quo. So the next time you notice rituals or habits that may be holding your community or team back, will you be that disruptor? That's been the Leadership Hacker News. We'd love to hear your stories, insights from wherever you are in the world, bring difference to our difference. So please get in touch with us. Our special guest on today's show is Dr. Laura Gallagher. She's a keynote speaker, a leadership coach, and organizational psychologist. She's also the CEO at Gallagher Edge. Laura, welcome to the Leadership Hacker podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Steve. So I'm really keen to find out how you ended up leading Gallagher Hedge and what happened beforehand. So just give us a bit of a potted history of your kind of early career and some of the passions that led you to do what you do. Absolutely. I started looking at psychology in college and thought I would go the route of being a therapist, something kind of, you know, traditional psychology stereotype. Uh, And then I realized how interested I was in social psychology. What happens when we get groups of people together and what are the ways that we form impressions and how does that affect the way we treat each other? And then I realized there's this whole field called industrial organizational psychology where we can look at those kinds of dynamics in the context of the workplace. So I came from Phoenix, Arizona over to Orlando, Florida, and I studied uh, organizational psychology for another five or six years after undergrad and got the chance to work for NASA. So I was working for NASA while I was finishing up my PhD. And after about seven years there, I started this business, Gallagher Edge, on the side of the NASA job. Um, And after about 10 months of that, I was like, you know what, let me try this full time. (laughs) And after about six months of that, I was like, oh, I don't know about this. (laughs) And I went back to a a nine to five role uh, with Disney. And 10 months later, I was like, you know what, I'm going to try this again. And so ever since 2015, I have been running Gallagher Edge as my full-time role. Excellent. And it was really interesting from the notes I made when we spoke first, you joined NASA at a real kind of pivotal moment in their history. And it was not long after the the Space Shuttle Columbia's tragedy back in 2003. And you were called in to help transform and enhance the culture at the Space Center in Kennedy Space Center. What was it you noticed about what was happening at NASA at the time? And, and what did you learn from that time? Yeah, so it was a really um, somber way to get things started in my, in my career, you know, and I obviously believed in the importance of psychology and organizational psychology, but to have the chance to come in and work for NASA, knowing that when they did the investigation about the accident, the investigation board report said that NASA's culture was as much to blame for the accident as the actual piece of foam that struck the orbiter during the launch. Wow. So yeah, it was a pretty strong indictment of the culture. And what I, find so incredibly remarkable about this. And I, you know, I worked very closely with my now business partner, Dr. Philip Mead. He had been out at the space center. He was working there um, for many years before the accident occurred was that just months before the accident happened, NASA was rated the number one place in the federal government by its employees. So when they surveyed all of the employees in every agency of the federal government about their workplace and how engaged they were and how motivated they were and how much they had job satisfaction, NASA was number one. So I don't know about you, Steve, but when I hear like, oh, culture was to blame for this tragedy, I'm like, ooh, man, that must have been a, what a mess, you know? That's right. Not aligned, is it? It must have yeah. been just awful. People not getting along, like overbearing managers, like this must be a terrible place to work. And that wasn't the case. And so 
what evolved in the in the work, I mean, I learned so much in my time there was understanding that there's a difference between having a quote good culture and a quote effective culture. Mm. So it's really important to be able to say, what is it that we're actually wanting to achieve and accomplish in terms of results? And how we truly designed the culture in a way that we will get those results versus just, hey, do people like working here? That's a really interesting dichotomy, isn't it? Yeah. As you're saying, I'm trying to kind of frame it almost as in so much as good cultures don't necessarily give you great performance. So what was the gap, if you like, between the two? Well, and of course, as you can imagine, you know, culture. So we, we describe cultures as emergent property. It's based on the interactions of the common behaviors and beliefs of the employees. And organizations are complex adaptive systems. So I definitely won't have time during our, our conversation today to get into all of the details about it, right? And the reason I, I qualify it so much is because I think it's really easy for anybody to be outside of a situation and look in and go, how could they be so stupid? So some of what I want to describe and, and point out, it's easy for somebody to, to fall into otherism and go, oh, well, I would never do that, right? Or that would never happen here. And when we do that, that's a deep form of defensiveness that stops us from learning from the mistakes of other people. Does, yeah. So my invitation to everybody listening is, you know, see how you can actually take some lessons away from some of what I can share about NASA's um, history and find out when might that also be true for me, right? Rather than going like, man, how did they miss that or whatever? So there's really, there's three levels that I can uh, talk about when I explain what was happening in NASA's culture leading up to the accident. This is based on our inside out models. So we have self at the core. Everything comes back to self. And then we have team as the middle layer. And then we have the organizational level at the um, broadest layer. So these like three concentric circles. So at the organizational layer, one of the biggest challenges is they had the program manager for shuttle in charge of everything from safety and technical concerns, but also programmatic concerns like budget and schedule. So when it comes down to it, you're looking to one person to try to effectively balance all of those things at the same time. That's just an organizational design flaw. You don't have people sitting around the table with an equal level of leadership voicing their opinions when it comes to, well, what does technical say? What does safety say? Okay, what does the program say? It was all falling on one person. And so they were essentially unknowingly creating a virtually impossible situation for this person to actually make good decisions, right? So a big piece of what we looked at was how can we design the organization differently so that we're not asking people to fight against the system and ask an engineer who's two or three or four or five levels down from a program manager and say, yeah, stand up in a meeting and say, hey, I don't have a lot of data, but I'm really worried about the shuttle, even though y'all have made a bunch of decisions in the past to say that we don't need to worry about this during flight. Like, what? Like, mm, yeah. that's really challenging. So at the org level, org design matters a ton. You really want to pay attention to how the design of the organization affects the culture. My experience and having worked in lots of different organizations, it's often the org design tries to fit the team yes. and the individual into the organization, yeah. not the other way around. Yeah. Yeah. When we work with our clients on organizational design, we it's so funny because I'm a psychologist and we're so human centric and we go into that process. We're like, okay, we really want you to not think about people. Like, don't think about human beings. Don't think about who you have right now. We really want you to think about the organization as a system, the organization as a machine. 
and we want to design it optimally to get the results we want to get and not design it around the specific humans, right? Because then you kind of end up like duct taping things together. Right. Um, like, oh, well, this person, I don't know if we have right now a right person to play a chief revenue officer role. So let's not do that. Let's just go ahead and, you know, keep this kind of biz dev over here and this kind of sales here or like, oh, you know what? I don't know if these two people really get along very well. So even though it makes sense for them to be in the same department, let's just break those up. Like people are, they're doing the best they can. And sometimes they make very flawed decisions for org design because they're, they're trying to base it around those specific people. Yeah. See that. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that was the org design, one of the biggest org design pieces. And that was um, one of the biggest initiatives that I supported when I first started my work there at the team level, there were some things happening with uh, communication So one of the findings that just it actually got a lot of attention at the time was that the the phone strike. And so for anybody who doesn't know, just briefly, during the final launch of Columbia, a piece of foam fell off of uh, the external tank, which is the large orange structure in the shuttle system. And it struck the orbiter, which is the part that looks like the plane. And they didn't know exactly where it hit. Um, They could see that it hit. They could see that it made contact. They could estimate the general size of the foam, but they just weren't sure. Um, and foam had been hitting the orbiter. Unfortunately, it happened numerous times before, and it had never been dangerous. It was always something that they had to deal with when they took the orbiter back and processed it to get ready for the next flight. They would need to change out some of the tiles for the heat shield, you know, but they, so they previously made a decision like, Hey, when foam strikes happen, we don't have to worry about it in flight. It's something that we'll deal with during processing. So this was something that they thought they already decided. And the foam strike, because they didn't know exactly where it hit and it looked quite large, it was some conversation, but it was like a third sub bullet on a PowerPoint slide or something like that in, you know, a presentation to the decision makers. And so that was one of the things that got a lot of attention was, hey, like what's happening with our team communication here? And are we over relying on trying to make things really brief and succinct and not giving things enough airtime to really understand what it is that we're deciding So that's one of the things that I really invite leaders to do is we're all so busy, right? And we all feel so stretched for time and it's so tempting to just want to push through decisions really quickly and not give them enough airtime. But it's in some cases, unfortunately, in this case, potentially catastrophic. Yeah. Sometimes you just got to go slow to go fast, haven't you? Absolutely. Yeah. Slow down to speed up is one of our favorite mantras. We're always inviting our clients to do it. And you know what? We work on it too. (laughs) It's something that we feel as well. So I I can understand the difficulty. And then the the other piece that I want to share that it just always stood out the most to me as a psychologist was at the self level. So at the self level, when it comes to culture, there were numerous people, numerous little groups, little teams actually around NASA that were looking deeply into this issue of the foam hitting the orbiter. And they were really concerned. They were really concerned, but they didn't have a lot of data. And NASA is very data driven. And so like I was starting to allude to earlier, it's really difficult. It was difficult in NASA's culture at the time to say, hey, I know we've made a decision in the past that foam is not something to worry about in flight, but let's just pretend that that's not true. And also, I don't have any data to actually tell me that this is going to be a catastrophe, but it might be. So can we talk about it and spend some more money to get some imagery so we can just determine better? That was a request that actually was made, but it, it was being made in all of these indirect ways, all these indirect channels. And because of the intrapersonal fear, to like really stand up and say, you know, 
hey, I'm, I'm actually terrified about this and I don't have data to back me up, every time the request to get more imagery was shut down. It wasn't well understood. And at a certain point, people stopped fighting for it mm, because they just didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. And as a result, a catastrophic event happened that could have been prevented had somebody been a bit more forthright or had communicated more effectively. Yeah, I mean there's probably numerous conversations, right? They could have gone differently. Yeah. And one of the one of the additional challenges is if they did in fact get the imagery and discover, oh no, this is quite a large hole that the foam has created in the orbiter's wing, they actually didn't know what they would do about it. There was no clear path or plan to fix that problem. And so part of what we believe is that the if I don't think that I know how to solve a problem, or if I don't think that there's anything that I can do about it, then subconsciously, I might actually convince myself that it's not really a problem yeah. and then not even allow myself to be fully aware of it. And that's a big part of what we think was happening when it came to the decision-making of the shuttle program manager at the time. Just, you know what? It's not an issue. There's nothing we can do about it. So it's not an issue. There's actually a quote in the Columbia Accident Investigation Board, almost exactly to that effect. That's really fascinating. Yeah. Uh, we could spend loads more time on that, I'm sure. <laughs> but culturally, that kind of three layers, that inside-out model you just described, all plays out to you can still have a good culture, but that's where performance problems can happen. Yeah. 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 It, it's, you know, there are so many things that unfortunately end up working against the intention like one of the one of the key things that was also happening for the agency was there was a lot of pressure. I mean, the shuttle program at this point was over 20 years old. It was constantly considered to be on the chopping block in terms of budget. You know, maybe they were they were afraid the program could be canceled. Everything that they were doing to build the space station would potentially be canceled. They had huge schedule pressure to get the um, International Space Station finished by a certain date. They, so this whole like save the program mentality led people to subconsciously make much more risky decisions than they would have otherwise. And we equate it to, you know, if there's a large, large beam just going 50 feet off of, you know, the Sears Tower and I put a hundred dollar bill at the end, are you going to walk out and get it? <laughs> yeah. you know, most people would say no, no, I'm going to pass. But if I, if I put your child out at the end of that beam, are you going to go get your child? It changes the dynamic somewhat, doesn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. So when when it's like save the program, save the baby, because that's how the program, the shuttle program felt for a lot of people, they would subconsciously start making riskier and riskier decisions to save the program. So riskier decisions to try to maintain the schedule, riskier decisions to say, oh, we don't have to worry about that right now because we need to keep moving forward. And so those were a lot of the things that we, we helped leaders pay attention to and take a look at. Some great lessons learned too. Absolutely. So you were then hired by Walt Disney to help with their brand. And this is an, another interesting dynamic in so much as that when people think of Walt Disney, they think of this high energy, positive culture. Tell us a little bit about what your experience was like with Walt Disney and, and how that might have changed their perspectives around what culture meant for them. When I was working for Disney, I was really excited about what they were focusing on because the, the big culture change they were wanting to bring was around changing how they did performance management. I mean, if you think about performance management in any organization, if you ask people like, hey, how do you like your performance management process and system? It tends to just get met with groans, huh. right? It, leaders start to look at those conversations as like performance rating justification conversations. Yes employees tend to feel, you know, demoralized and frustrated and 
judged. They feel like they end up trying to defend their own performance. Like almost nobody likes them. And the worst part is they don't actually tend to improve performance, which is the whole point. They're supposed to help improve performance. And so what I loved about what they were doing was they wanted to get away from this whole idea of, you know, judging the people and saying, uh, here's your rating, right? We're going to grade you now to say, no, we want to train leaders how to coach. It's a totally different part of the brain. It's a different way to show up. It, it requires growth mindset, right? And not just for oneself, but a belief that this person I'm talking to can and absolutely will grow. And like, and we're in, the, we're in it together kind of thing. And so I thought that was a, a really exciting project that they were doing and huge because it's just, it changes so much of what people are comfortable with. Uh, you know, this idea of like, it's so much, but can't we just kind of give people a grade and then move forward? And so I was working with them um, primarily on that on that project. And it was actually still an ongoing project when I made the decision to leave and, and focus full time with Gallagher Edge. It's a massive mindset shift, though, isn't it? Moving away yes. from self-justification of here's what I've done versus here's how I'm helping the future evolve, which is what that coaching culture will create, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, part of what I, I, I took from that and I have continued to build on with the clients I work with now is a paradigm shift or a, a mental model shift around what does it mean to look at your employees' performance? Stop thinking about your employees' performance as a result of, you know, your employees' competence, right? It's, it's their performance is actually a result of their performance and your performance and the relationship the two of you have together. And when you start to think about your employees' performance in that way, then it really makes it feel in these conversations like this is you and me on the same side working toward a solution together yeah. versus that you versus me thing that happens with those performance justification conversations, right? Of the more traditional style. Exactly. And the other really strange notion I found is that you actually can't manage performance when it's done. It's done. When you, you have achieved a result, it's yeah. done. It's locked in time and, and yep. history from that point onwards. And therefore spending time over analyzing that is almost counterintuitive, isn't it? Yeah, it can take people backwards. And I, I, you may remember where this came from, Steve. I can't remember the attribution, but feed forward instead of yeah, feedback. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Something I deploy all the time. Love it. It's such a powerful concept. And it starts to become like we use this um, communication framework. Uh, it's an acronym, FRIC. It's F-R-I-C. And so it's you know useful, especially when you, if you think about this whole paradigm of shifting performance management away from rating and judging and more into just regular coaching conversations. We want it to be regular. We want it to be timely. We want it to happen in the moment. And so sometimes that it's hard. People are like, Ooh, these are hard conversations. So go ahead and start with the fear of the feeling, get that out of the way. Acknowledge if there is any emotion that you're noticing in the, in, in, within yourself as you approach the conversation, just lead with vulnerability. The R is for request. What do you want? And this is a, an example of feed forward. So I'm not harping on somebody for something that, like you said, Steve, is done. It's in the past. It's over. It cannot be managed. But I can make a request of what I would like from you in the future. And it's not a demand. It's a request. And then the I is for inquiry, which is essentially, you know, what can I do to make it easier for you to honor my request? And this is recognizing that whole co-creation idea. This recognizes like, hey, whatever's happening with us, with whatever's happening with the performance, we're both creating it. We're both contributing to it. And I, I think I see something that I'd like from you. That's my request. What do you see within me? What would you like from me? How can I also participate and move together with you towards a solution? 
And then uh, you want to get to at least one commitment, maybe two. Um, and sometimes it's more, sometimes people have some communication debt and they haven't really talked openly for a while. And so they actually want to go back and forth uh, to make multiple requests. And what they're doing is they're designing how they want to work together. And it's, it's very, very effective at getting people past some of these conversations that they, they normally avoid, whether it comes to improving performance or improving team dynamics or, or anything like that. I love the simplicity of that little model. It can actually help just frame the conversation as well, can't it? If you use that yeah. simple process as well. And one of the other things I also noticed that kind of is aligned to that almost is the principle that when people talk about performance, I get people to talk about the performer rather than the performance because the performer drives a performance with its good, bad, or indifferent. Yes, very true. Yeah, keep the focus on the person. Love it. What are the things that you're working on with Galahad Edge and blending that psychology and industrial psychology together? Yeah, so this is really fun. So I mentioned uh, Dr. Philip Mead is um, my business partner, and he and I worked together closely at NASA following the Spatial Columbia accident. So we've worked together now for... I guess about maybe 15, 16 years, something like that. And so he's got this industrial engineering background and I've got this industrial organizational psychology background. And so when we bring that together, it's been, for me at least, it's been really cool because I get to stay really focused on the psychological elements. You know, I get to stay deep within the human issues that are going on because humans within ourselves, we are these complex adaptive systems, right? But then at the organizational level, there's this whole macro, you know, systems theory, systems thinking, and how can we really make sure that we're fully designing everything? So we use metaphors of like, you know, designing a car, like what are the design requirements of, of a vehicle is, are you trying to create like a dump truck that can carry heavy loads? Or are you trying to design a race car that can turn really quickly around a corner? Like there's no good or bad, but let's just be really intentional. So he's brought so much of that macro, like organizational level thinking and allowing me to stay really focused on the human side. And we've, we've built this model that really connects all of that, where we focus on these cultural traits these things that emerge, you know, maturity, diversity, community, and unity, but we tie it deep into human motivation, like fundamental human motivation. We posit that there are four key drivers within us, and this gets you away from carrots and sticks, right? This is just human stuff. We are all driven for growth, mm-hmm. for belonging, for connection, and for identity, And so we call these like, you know, these are like the missing links. We talk about linking the human beings together in a way that we can tap into these drivers, these fundamental motivations. And then what we get are these emergent traits. And so that's been a really exciting process. We've just um, been writing a book about that and tying in all the work that we did with NASA's um, culture following the accident, what we've learned and how we've continued to apply that throughout working with uh, different clients throughout different industries over the years it'll be great to get you and philip back on a, a later show when the book's out yeah and really get into some of that together that would be fantastic so f- from the last time we met which is you, know, you, you present as a really confident successful individual who's got a huge track record of success and cultural shifting and changing behind you but it hasn't always been that way for you and i remember from the last time we met you have this real problem with imposter syndrome for some time until you had this aha moment and I wondered if you might be able to tell us a little bit about that yeah absolutely gosh imposter syndrome well I mean the first time (laughs) the first time that I really felt imposter syndrome was certainly when I began my work with NASA I was actually 24 years old 
when I was hired and I was asked to consult directly with the senior executive service director of engineering, which was this new organization that was being formed, right? As we were reorganizing the space center. I'm like, okay, you know, 20, like, what is it that I'm going to be able to share with him that he's going to look at me as this 24 year old kid and go, okay, great. Thanks so much. So I really struggled with that when I very first started and I noticed that, and this took me, this took me many years to figure out that it really came down to a lack of genuine self-acceptance, right? Which means being fully okay with myself exactly as I was in the moment, all my flaws, all my imperfections, all the things I didn't know, and also being okay with my talents and my strengths. So in the beginning, the imposter syndrome hit me super hard and it would result in a lot of like, I would end up being rigid sometimes, right? So instead of being more flexible and co-creating with the people that I was working with, I was really just wanting to be right. And what that meant is I was focusing too much of my energy on trying to prove that I was right rather than focusing on getting mm, it right Yeah, and, you know, working with them. And where I really saw that affect my, my performance was actually with my peers. So the crazy irony about, my early career, you know, I was brought in to NASA to really help them focus on psychological safety. How can we help leaders create psychological safety so that people are no longer afraid to say, hey, I don't have any data, but I'm really afraid about this. Can we please have an open conversation or whatever it is, raise a dissenting opinion, champion a dissenting opinion. Um, And so that's what I was working on with my internal customers. And that was working out reasonably well but I went through this experience. I was a five day workshop called the human element just a, a couple of years into my career. And I, I throughout that week, I got all kinds of feedback just as we were going through. And it was a lot of stuff that felt really weird at the time, but the short version is I found out that I was actually engaging in a lot of the same exact behaviors with my team that I was asking the leaders in my customer organizations to not do mm. So I wasn't creating psychological safety within my team. I was shutting people down without realizing it. And that realization like shook me to my core. I mean, I, I, I didn't even realize up to that point that I had low self-acceptance or lower self-acceptance. I mean, it, it's not dichotomous, obviously, but I, it really made me take a much deeper look at things. And so I, it took me still a couple more years to, to really figure it out and recognize that, you know, being, being competent isn't about knowing stuff. That's a very, you know, like grade school kind of mentality that children are taught, you know, learn this stuff, memorize it, take a test, and then it's right or wrong. It's very binary, very black and white, but competence isn't knowing stuff. Competence is the ability to learn, grow, adapt, figure things out. Yeah. And I can do that with other people and I I don't have to be right. And so I I understood my own defense mechanisms to a much greater degree. And once I got there, I realized that this idea of imposter syndrome, Steve, it's actually very like arrogant and judgmental because if I have imposter syndrome, part of what I'm saying is, oh my gosh, these people around me are so stupid. I have fooled all of them into thinking that I actually know what I'm doing. (laughs) And I was like, whoa, 
like I thought imposter syndrome was kind of this like internally like, oh, you know, I'm just I'm, I'm insecure. And yes, it is. And insecurity leads us to not only judge ourselves, but judge other people. And so it just started to completely shift my whole lens as I looked at, at what this meant. It's like, you know what? Do I know everything? Uh, not even close. Right. The more I learn, the more I realize I don't know. But my value isn't just in knowing stuff. My value is in being able to work with other people and continue to learn and grow and adapt. And even whatever it is that I think I know, I don't know anything. <laughs> like it, it, we're all wrong all the time. Yeah. And so if we can just shift the lens and get away from binary thinking, I think a lot of imposter syndrome will start to fall away from people. Yeah. And by asking more questions and learning more things, not only do we get richer, but we actually create more aha moments in other people as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Asking questions and really listening are two of the most powerful and sometimes underutilized behaviors and skills. Yeah. So if our listeners are listening to us talk about imposter syndrome and they have a perception that that could be them, what would be your counsel to them to maybe go about dealing with that? So... Anytime we can develop a practice of self-acceptance, it's going to significantly reduce this feeling of imposter syndrome. And so I define self-acceptance as being fully okay with yourself, exactly as you are right now. That includes your flaws and imperfections, as well as your talents and strengths. So I'll give you a couple really tangible things that listeners can do to develop a practice of self-acceptance. And it's a practice. You can think about it like, something you want to do on a daily basis, brushing your teeth, for example, or, you know, moving your body, some kind of physical exercise. It's not a, a light switch that you just get to flip on and off. self Okay, I've accepted myself. It's a practice. It's a, a rewiring of your brain. So one way to practice higher self-acceptance is um, we call it taking credit. Another way to frame it is like, what am I proud of myself for? So let's say, for example, I want to start running. And I'm, I'm like, I'm going to run three miles and I get all my gear on and I go out there and I run and maybe I'm like not quite a mile in and I'm starting to cramp and I can hardly breathe and my legs are on fire. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't think I can do this. And so I might have this raging imposter syndrome in the moment. And I'm like, oh my God, like I, I want to be a runner. Who am I kidding? I can't possibly be a runner. So taking credit would be instead of focusing on the gap of, oh my gosh, I wanted to run three miles. I only ran one. What is wrong with me? So embarrassing. Oh my God, what an idiot. Why did I think I could do that? Right. All that really negative Mm. self-talk, the inner critic taking credit is saying, you know what? I am proud of myself for getting out there and running a mile because that was a mile more than I ran yesterday. Or I'm proud of myself for, for getting out there and giving it a shot because that was a kind of a tough step for me. And I want to allow myself to feel good about that as an incremental step. So taking credit or being proud of yourself for things that represent courage, that represent progress, doing that regularly will actually accelerate your whole journey of growth and make it much easier for you to get over this whole idea of like, oh my gosh, I'm a phony and they're all going to figure me out. I love that. So that's one tip. And then I'll give one more tip too, which is around um, forgiving yourself. So we're just, we're really trying to quiet the inner critic with a lot of these and like give more volume to the, the champion voice. So forgiving yourself, it's so easy for us to fall into a pattern of, of beating ourselves up. Most people actually at some point in their lives have, they've believed that they have to beat themselves up or they won't 
learn, grow, improve. They think that they need that like really mean voice in order to actually get their button gear. And until you can truly experiment with quieting that voice and leaning just in the champion voice, you'll never learn that there are so many other things that still motivate you to move forward because it's something that we're just fundamentally wired to do is grow as humans. So find the things that you want to forgive yourself for and forgive yourself as quickly as you can. Even if it doesn't feel totally real, like let's say that I, I, I miss a meeting with a client, you know, something happened with my schedule or just, I don't know, I dropped the ball and I miss a meeting with a client. I could beat myself up. I could get all mired down in all of the ways that, you know, oh my gosh, who, who do I think I'm kidding? Trying to run this business, trying to be a consultant. I can't even show up to a meeting on time. That's my inner critic, right? And she can be really brutal. Or I can say, okay, you know what? You actually did have a lot going on and you know that you would never intentionally miss a meeting. So let's make sure that we learn from this. And, you know, whatever it was that caused me to miss the meeting, I'm going to make sure that I always have a reminder set for myself so that doesn't happen again. And it's okay. And so it's this combination of having self-compassion while also recognizing that, you know, I'm not living up to my current standard. And so when you can bring in that balance of holding a boundary for yourself while also having self-compassion when you fail to meet it, that's you forgiving yourself. And these are practices that when you do them every day, your self-acceptance will get higher and higher and higher. And not only will you end up defeating these imposter syndrome moments, but you'll just be able to work so much better with other people. You'll be able to laugh at yourself. You'll be more attentive to other people. You'll be able to empathize more easily. You're going to basically have a deeper trust in your underlying ability to cope with whatever the world throws at you because it's always going to throw things at you. Exactly right. What you've just described is almost a a rewiring of that neurological pathways that we've created those previously bad habits with. Yes. But replacing them with positive rituals and positive behaviors. And and I love the fact you call it self-acceptance practice because exactly that's what it is you'll continually have to practice at it until it becomes second nature, right? Yes, absolutely. It's a practice and it gets really meta too, Steve, because if I find myself falling away from my self-acceptance practice, I can actually practice self-acceptance around that. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah, but you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, (laughs) yeah. So, you know what? I, I have actually been really hard on myself lately and I haven't been using some of these tools and, and that's okay. It's a lot of wiring I'm working against, and I am committed to bringing that practice back. Excellent. Brilliant. Okay, so this part of the show, we close out on three things. And the first thing we're going to close out on is to tap into the leadership aspects of your work and your career and ask you to narrow down some of those things that you've been working on. But to call out perhaps your top three leadership hacks or your top tips or ideas, what would the top three be? Top three. Okay. The first one we've alluded to a little bit when we talked about slow down to speed up. So pause, the power of pause. You know, I think that when leaders are really struggling, it's usually because things are moving so fast. And in the moment, their energy is not leaving enough space for other people to truly be who they are. And sort of this angsty energy can can spread throughout and it ends up stifling conversation and decreasing the effectiveness of decision-making. So taking more moments of pause in conversation, I think significantly improves the quality of those conversations. Um, and that's another practice that leaders can, 
bring into their daily lives. I invite my clients to do like an eight second pause between every meeting, between sending every email, take eight seconds, literally just eight seconds of breath in and out. And then on to the next task. And it just sort of brings a calmer energy to the whole thing, which I believe um, is much needed. <laughs> yeah, it's almost a little bit of a reboot, isn't it? Yes. Oh, I love that framing of it. Yeah, that's really good. Um, another one is um, listening. Listening, listening, listening. And I know that, Steve, you do a lot of work in, in change. And I'm sure you've heard this too. I, I work with so many leaders who, when they're wanting to bring about a change and they're they're feeling resistance, either passive or active, but the people just aren't, they're not doing it. They're not, they're not stepping in line. They tend to focus on, I guess I have to tell them again. I guess I have to tell them differently. I guess I have to tell them louder. And what I, what I want them to do instead is like you were saying, ask questions and listen, listen, they may not even know themselves why they're resisting the change or whatever it is that you're asking them to do. They may not be self-aware enough, But when you can ask those questions and really hold space and truly listen, not only to what they're saying, but listen for how they're feeling, listen to the things they're not actually saying out loud, you will increase their self-awareness as well as your own. And then you're going to actually know, okay, this is the true problem for us to solve here so we can get back on the same page. So listening, very powerful. And then the third one I would say is um, openness which another way you can talk about that is, is vulnerability. I think, I think this is becoming something that leaders are understanding more and more, but too many leaders, I think still believe that they're supposed to know, or they're supposed to be able to figure things out and their lack of vulnerability in conversation leads them to actually show up with more rigidity, which again, stifles communication. It can shut down conversation Um, And it it can harm trust, actually. So when leaders can go first with vulnerability, go first with with being open about what they're really thinking and feeling, being open about, uh, you know, what they'd like. We use that FRIC acronym again here to invite leaders to to be more open. Then others tend to also be more open. And that's where we get more information flowing back and forth. Trust increases, collaboration increases, and performance improves. Super, super lessons. Thank you. Next part of the show, we call it Hack to Attack. So this is typically where something in your work or your life hasn't worked out, could have even screwed up. But as a result of the experience, you've learned from it and it's now serving you well. What would your Hack to Attack be? Mm. Well, I think, you know, the the biggest one for me for sure was what I had described earlier with, um, you know, my experience finding out that I was actually uh, stifling, (laughs) stifling people that I worked with without even realizing it. But I'll, I'll go a little bit deeper into that whole recovery process because once I became more self-aware and I realized that I was not actually creating psychological safety within my team, my immediate go-to response was to try to imitate other people who seemed like they were doing it well. And <laughs> it's, it seemed, you know, for, I think I was, I was still like mid twenties at that point. So I was like, oh, this is great. You know, I can just watch behavior and I can model that behavior. I even had like um, acting experience as a kid. You know, I was like, oh, I can totally, yeah, I can totally nail this. I can, I can behave like this. I can act this way. And 
I, I came to learn, unfortunately, in the first several months of, of trying this approach that trying to only shift my behavior, only shift how I was showing up on the outside without actually believing anything differently about the world or really just sort of being in a lot of inner turmoil, I was actually still hurting trust. So people were noticing that I was showing up differently, but (laughs) they still, still didn't totally know how to be around me because they could feel that I wasn't being myself. And so, you know, I think the hack to attack would be to don't, don't think that you can just focus on shifting behavior and think that all the rest will follow really see what the belief is underneath, you know, how can you rewire your actual brain that's, that's driving the behavior so that the behavior changes is a more natural, more emergent reality. So focus on what is it that I believe about myself and the people around me, because that's, what's driving my behavior. How can I shift those beliefs around? Because you know, that at least some of those beliefs are wrong, right? So much of what we believe is wrong. Mm. So if I can, shift my beliefs and allow the behavior change to follow, that's going to be a much more genuine way to approach growth. And ironically, you know, from a psychology perspective, you you know this more than most being an organizational psychologist, we have a, as human beings an innate BS monitor through our neurotransmitters. Yes. Right, so we're listening and smelling and sussing this out straight away that it's not congruent. And then straight away, we can recognize that it doesn't feel right. Absolutely. Even if we're not totally sure what it is, we're like, mm, that conversation did not feel good. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. And the last thing we're going to do is ask you to do a bit of time travel, bump into Laura at 21, and you now get to give her some advice. What would it be? I would want her to recognize as early as possible that she does have very strong perfectionist tendencies and that this drive with perfectionist tendencies is actually working against her. So I would want her to lean into being messy and recognize that, you know, you go forward even five or six years in your life and nobody gives a crap about your grades. <laughs> so <That's true. laughs> right? like there were so many things that I was so focused on that just um, that didn't matter. And uh, of course, you know, getting good grades in college helped me get into grad school. And that's, that's great. But I, I literally will tell, students now, especially those who are in grad school, I'm like, you know what, just learn, focus on learning. I'm like, I don't know if I would have listened to this advice myself, but I was so focused on the evaluative component of it. And um, any advice that I could have given to Laura at 21 to encourage her to instead focus on the journey and focus on the, the learning and growth that's occurring rather than this sort of, how do I look to other people? Fantastic advice. Really good stuff. So we're going to have to find some way of working together, you know, because we've got lots of parallels and lots of commonalities in terms of the work that we do. So um, I would love that. Yeah, we, we have to do that. Yes. But outside of today, our listeners are probably wanting to learn how they can get to know a bit more about you, Gallagher Hedge. When the book comes out, how can they find you? Where's the best place for us to send them? Best place to find me is at GallagherEdge.com. I know a lot of people think it's Gallagher because that's way more common, but it's actually Gallagher. So GallagherEdge.com. And there you can, um, you can email me and you can see our phone number there, or you can just see the different ways that we work with people. We'll make sure also they're in our show notes so that people can go straight away from listening to this and connect with you. Thank you. Laura, I love talking with you. It's 
been a few months since we met last and every time I do speak with you I just get this real sense of desire for more learning you, you spark things in me so that's been great and I hope our listeners have got that out of our show today and I just want to say thank you for coming on and being part of our community and wish you every success with the book launch and we'll have to get you back on the show in the future thank you so much Steve thank you Laura I genuinely want to say a heartfelt thanks for taking time out of your day to listen in too. We do this in the service of helping others and spreading the word of leadership. Without you listening in, there would be no show. So please subscribe now if you haven't done so already. Share this podcast with your communities and network and help us develop a community and a tribe of leadership hackers. And finally, if you'd like me to work with your senior team, your leadership community, keynote an event or you would like to sponsor an episode please connect with us via our social media and you can do that by following and liking our pages on twitter and facebook our handle there is at leadership hacker instagram you can find us there at the underscore leadership underscore hacker and at youtube we're just leadership hacker so that's me signing off i'm steve rush and i've been the leadership hacker